Dr. David Grover. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Uh, my name is Dr. David Perodin, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Um, in the past, we've talked about Hurricanes Irma and Harvey, uh, Hurricane Florence, and now Hurricane Dorian, and a different perspective of what's happening with Hurricane Dorian, the impact on the Bahamas, the, the truth, the tragic truth of the devastation of what is happening right now in the Bahamas. So with me today, I have Herman Perotti. I like the last name because it's like Perotin, right? So um, Herman Perotti, uh, Shailen Slulzavis. And Shailen, you can collect or correct what I just um, missed. Uh, can you say your last name for us? Yes, or, no problem, David. It's Shailen Sluzalis. Oh, Shailen Sluzalis. Yes, I've got it. Okay. Um, and K- Katie Pashan. Uh, Katie is doing work with uh, Triton Relief, and in the past it was uh, Cajun Navy Relief. Um, Katie's been doing so much terrific work for so many years in disaster relief, and I wrote about it in my book, School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America, the importance of civilian rescue forces and people like Katie. So let's get some background, because you're going to listen to the show right now, but you're probably going to listen to it later. You're going to watch it later. And we have a tendency to conflate and to blend our memories. Let's, let's just talk about the Bahamas. I'm going to give you a background. So the Bahamas extends 760 miles from the coast of Florida on the northwest, almost to Haiti on the southeast. The group of islands consists of 700 islands. Okay, 700 islands, 30 are uninhabited. So we have many islands that compose the Bahamas. Nassau is, is what we typically think about when we think of the Bahamas. Um, it has 230,000 people. The Bahamas in total has just under 400,000 people. So more than half of the residents live on Nassau. Nassau, you think of uh, Paradise Island. That's all kind of part of that Nassau complex right there. About 60 miles to get there from Miami. So uh, Hurricane Dorian, on September 1st, 2019, the eye of the hurricane made landfall, Abaca Islands, maximum sustained winds of 185 miles an hour. So right there um, in the Bahamas. Now, one of the strongest hurricanes ever, but what was unique about Hurricane Dorian is how slowly it moved, about a mile per hour. Now, imagine that. You're getting ground down by 185-mile-an-hour winds, which are whipping debris and whipping waves all over the islands, and that's moving at about one mile per hour. So it's two days that you're getting pummeled, and everything is getting ground down by this ferocious hurricane. So the devastation is unimaginable to a scale that we have never seen before. As of Monday, September 9th, NBC News reported 50 people had died in the Bahamas. But we have thousands of people missing. And from what I've been gathering um, from people who have had contact with Bahamas, a discussion that Katie and I had earlier, this number of fatalities is likely to grow into the thousands. So when you're listening to this, it might already well be into 
the thousands. Most infrastructure is destroyed, if not heavily damaged. Communications, largely gone. Roads, airports, streets, landmarks, gone. Water, food systems, getting to someone's house, imagine, gone. Not going to be returned for a long time. Um, humanitarian aid is having a hard time as of, as of right now, the information coming out. Um, it's having a hard time uh, getting out to people, having a hard time getting people into the aid. Remember, roads are destroyed. Uh, people are extremely isolated. And as days, as time ticks on, this becomes more and more urgent. So today, with my two guests on the Safety Doc podcast, I am one blessed person to again have Katie Pashan on. And um, Herman and, and, and Shaylin to have both of you on and to bring a perspective that I haven't had on the show before, which is rescue forces for persons with disabilities, uh, bringing assets um, to persons with disabilities and also the uniqueness of what might be the assets which are sought, you know, such as a nebulizer or catheters or so forth that typically everybody is thinking food, water, shelter, yes, and more. So um, I, I'd like to hear a, a little bit first. Um, well, Katie, I'll, I'll start with you. And, and then um, Herman and, and, and Shailen, uh, tell me about your work and then also what you've been doing with the disaster relief in the Bahamas. So Katie, if you can start us off. So I'm still with Triton Relief Group, <clears throat> as well as I'm always partnered up with Trach Mamas of Louisiana, who are a huge, uh, huge part of my relief work. Recently was made one of their board members. So uh, I think I've shared with you in the past what Trach Mamas of Louisiana is. They got established um, during the 2016 flood. And in 2017, of course, Paul Timmons from Port Light Inclusive Disaster Strategies is how I became connected to the disability network. And um, over the years, that's always something that seems to be forgotten about. People don't have the capability to get to shelters on their own to receive the, the, the aid and the supplies and the need like everyone else does. And there's always an issue every year, every state about where we are going to relocate these people, how we're going to get them there, how we're going to make sure that they are okay. And you would be surprised with just the recent storm for Dorian. We were fighting with, and Herman and Shaylin know this, with Florida because people with disabilities are turned away at general pop shelters. That's not okay. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, um, so, t so tell me more about that. I mean, cause well, that's illegal under the Americans Absolutely. with Disabilities um, Act and uh, they were, you know, go ahead. No, I, I, I talk about this um, when I, when I work with uh, school superintendents with legislators and, and everybody is aware of it, but again, it doesn't seem like it actually happens when a crisis strikes every year. And so Every year we face the same scenarios and the questions are always the same. We experienced this situation last year. Why has it not been addressed? For example, um, which one? I mean, there's so many that come to mind. Um, 
Florida actually requires people with disabilities to register prior to the storm. Or what we were told this time around was call 911 two days before the storm. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't make sense because, you know, people are going to be moving too, right? That's the thing. If, if you're in one static location, uh, maybe that makes some sense. But of course, in an evacuation, people every five minutes are somewhere else because they're, they're moving. Um, so Their yeah. rights are being violated. Yeah. It, it, you can only imagine the rights that are being violated for the disability network in the Bahamas. Yeah. yeah. If, if you take the United States and know what takes place during disasters, imagine you can times it by 10, I'm sure. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, Katie, um, I'm going to, and we're going to get into a set of questions where we'll be able to, um, you know, bring more context to this, but um, Herman and Shaylin, tell me about the work that you've been doing um, kind of in big picture and then bring it down. And, and you know, if, if you'd like to tell me how you got into uh, the work that you're doing, I'd love to hear that story. Thank you, David. Um, we are um, originally we we are activists. We are disability rights activists uh, with ADAPT. It's an organization over 35 years old that has uh, fought for the rights of people with disabilities across the nation, specifically uh, to deinstitutionalize. Um, we believe that all people with disabilities deserve the right to community services, and right now that is state by state. Uh, I've been doing this for over 15 years out of Philadelphia, <clears throat> and Chilin joined over a number of years ago. Uh, in 2017, while we were protesting outside a, a camp out at the Russell Building in D.C., fighting to save um, Medicaid and Obamacare, uh, Paul Timmons, as Katie introduced earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, came by and introduced himself talked about the work he does, and it was a great contact. Uh, then uh, Maria struck uh, USVI and, and Puerto Rico, you know, Category 5 destruction, and uh, he called us days later and, and asked us if we would, if we would be, um, so, you know, to go, and I am originally from Puerto Rico. I moved to Philadelphia in 2004 when I was 21, and, you know, the opportunity to go back and help my uh, fellow disabled persons with disabilities in Puerto Rico. Uh, I use a wheelchair. I'm a quadriplegic myself. And it, it was, I was, we were three weeks deployed uh, for a week after Maria. We were able to empower the local um, disability organizations, it, meet in the table with FEMA uh, on a weekly basis. And at the same time, we were checking on shelters that they were meeting ADA standards. We were out in the interior of the island, most of the time truly making sure that those that would be reached the last um, got the assistance they needed. And as Katie was saying, water, food, these are, everyone has these necessities. Many organizations, many NGOs do this. Nobody does disability needs. You know, if I don't have a wheelchair, if in the heat, in, in the tropics, I'll start getting a decubitai ulcer very quickly. If I don't have the supplies that I need to keep my health, my independence, that disaster is going to make my life that much more difficult. 
Um, we came back, um, you know, after being deployed, and, and it was uh, what a difficult and learning experience um, knowing how bad the system is and how much work is needed. Now, um, most recently in, in May, uh, I was selected at the, as a United Nations Disaster Risk Reduction Focal Point for Persons with Disabilities in the Americas. And uh, through that work uh, and the work that we do with Light and Partnership, making sure that there are legislations in place to make sure that in disasters, we, our rights are protected and we get the assistance we need as everyone else gets the assistance they need to be remain the independence and come back to normalcy as quickly as possible. Wow, that is, uh, yeah. first of all, thank you for the work that, that you do. And, um, you know, I've, I've worked with uh, persons with disabilities, students with disabilities for my entire career. I did not know um, that people uh, doing the work that you're doing um, are out there. You know, I thought this was all part of uh, FEMA and part of broader organizations, and I didn't understand until you just actually shared this. And before, when I was developing uh, the story and doing some research into your organizations and some of the work that you've done, I'm like, oh my goodness, wow, um, people have no idea. So right now, this is so important for people to understand, as you said, um, the keeping independence and then, you know, not only independence, but, you know, your your life needs, your, your necessities to maintain your life for one after a uh, sentinel, you know, event, a sentinel disaster, and then get that baseline established and then, and then um, you know, move forward from there. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. My name is Shaylin. Uh, Herman really did say it all so well and, and really um, very similar uh, what I would relay, but, uh, you know, one thing, uh, my sister has a disability. I've been an advocate for her for my whole life, I would say. And, um, I do remember, you know, you mentioning being a special education teacher and, and being involved in connecting those avenues. Uh, I remember uh, as a child, just you know, her classrooms were always in the basement. Um, and, you know, when you think about evacuations and emergency planning, um, how people are able to actually get from those classrooms out of harm's way and into safety, and we often find that as an issue in everyday life. Uh, if you go to a public building and you're on the seventh floor and the power goes out and you use a wheelchair, you're now stuck on the seventh floor. Um, and then we also see that in disasters uh, where people are then getting evacuated uh, without their wheelchair uh, because, you know, it's life or death. Uh, but then they're not getting reunited with the equipment that they need in order to be independent in the community. 
and let's not forget we live in a country where uh, very sadly mass shootings happen in school all the time and if you must know David that the evacuation processes and emergencies in schools um, have very little if at all for children with disabilities yeah right right in um, I wrote a, an article that was published um, in Capin Journal a couple months ago, and the article was about school districts exempting students with disabilities from safety drills and exercises because it was too much of a of a burden. Yeah. Now, of course, that's ridiculous, right? I don't agree with that, but this is this is saying you know we're not going to do this because it, yeah, it takes too much time or the student becomes um, too dysregulated. And, you know, I, I said, we, please let me write an article on this. And Kappen said, yes. So I was pulling firsthand from um, people I was talking to. I was teaching a class, actually, a university class for aspiring special education directors, 20 students. And five of them said, this is our practice in our district. We give, you know, parents the option or case managers the option to opt out students from drills. And I That's said... I said, that's, no. I said, well, there's no law that would allow that. Plus, even if there was a law, you would never want to do that, right? Because if anything happens, the students have to know how to respond. Plus, the people working with those students need to know how to interface with them and get them to safety. And not only here, but what if something happens at home, you know, or, you know, you're 25 years old and there's a fire in your apartment building and now you don't know what to do. You go into a closet or something. Um, so it was just absolutely mind-boggling. And people would say, well, we have a form here that our district opt-out form. And I said, that doesn't mean anything. Um, and and it, so I wrote the article and, and boiled it down. I did an interview with attorney James Sibley out of San Jose Disability Rights Attorney. Um, excellent. You can go back in, in, my, in my show, maybe 15 episodes. Um, Jim talks about his adult son who has autism and how Jim was diligent in, in working with the district to make sure that his son received the same safety training, but then Absolutely. in a way that, that was applicable to his son. Uh, um, so, yeah, that they weren't exempting him from, from drills. So I see it in the schools and the states, and I can only imagine what is happening when we get to international disasters um, is, is, you know, that times 10 um, or times 100. So, and, and that is sort of part of the stigma that we try to break down um, that is sort of universal. Uh, we are the ones that are most forgotten. Uh, we are considered burdens to, to the <laughs> that are coming to save others and whatnot. And, um, you know, that is one thing that uh, as the partnership in Portlight, we are disability-led organizations. People with disabilities, uh, you know, are the ones that are leading this organization and these efforts because we are the ones that know uh, our lives best and can adapt to uh, our surroundings and to the systems around us that are truly not accessible for everyone. Yeah, Shailen, that's a that is a... A terrific way to to frame that for everyone. That is that is spot on. Um, let's get into the evacuation for the Bahamas. Um, well, you know, first of all, a hurricane isn't like a a tornado. It isn't like an earthquake. We have some lead time, you know, with with the hurricanes. So we knew this hurricane uh, very early on was going to be significant. The impact it would have in the Bahamas wasn't, you know, certain until a little bit closer, but definitely it would be impacted. So t 
tell me what you're perceiving in, in and you know anyone can get answer this and, and kind of come in and and scaffold the conversation but um you know katie we were talking about five thousand uh, dollar airplane or, or helicopter rides and out of out of the Bahamas, and if you were media, if you're with with NBC, ABC, or, or big media, you definitely got one of those rides. Um, but what what was the problem, or the problems with not getting an evacuation, or at least getting people from the um, smaller islands or the islands that didn't have robust infrastructure into like NASA or, or not? I think NASA, right? Where you have more of the robust infrastructure, at least a better chance, right? That's probably not the best option, but it's a better option. So what all fell apart because this uh, this kind of unfolded in slow motion before our eyes, and nothing right. happened so, of substantial uh, nature. If I may, but I do want you to go into the details uh, specifically. But um, backtracking a little bit and learning um, what the uh, United Nations Disaster Risk Reduction Office has learned over the many years, um, most recently in their Sendai framework um, developed in 2015, it calls out, uh, you know, we're talking about the Bahamas as you opened up. It's a peninsula island nation over 700 islands. Um, island nations don't have the, the capacity infrastructure that many strong, you know, uh, you know, nations that have, you know, a lot of natural resources that they can empower themselves. If you look at the GDP of the Bahamas, mm-hmm. 85% of it goes into banking and much of it tourism. Um, the local government, it has said, we do not have, we were not ready for this kind of right. catastrophe. And then that's what, that's where I was going to go with. I think that, if you look at how governors and FEMA and the American Red Cross are never prepared in every state that we've seen over and over, I think that this is no different. NEMA, which is their version of FEMA, the International Red Cross, and the Prime Minister were not prepared. They didn't see, they didn't heed any warnings. They didn't take any precautions and put anything in, in, into place. And I'm sorry, but I feel that if NEMA is a government agency, someone should have a contact or a reach out to FEMA. There should be some sort of partnership there if they're both federal entities to prepare ahead of time. Right, makes. <laughs> No, m- makes sense. Um, so, Herman, w- what's your your perception of that? Because I mean, you're seeing this unfold, and you know, you know, the needs of people on the islands, and it's this matter of time where the the gap is closing. The hurricane is going on onset. Um, I guess, what were you doing? Who are the people you're contacting to try to get some movement of either? Um, people with with uh, medical needs or disabilities into a, the most secured environment that they could be, or uh, or what? And what I guess frustrations happen. What did you experience with the evacuation? We were like, you know. Well, um, before uh, Dorian impacted um, last week, really last Friday, uh, 
we reached out to uh, as many local or Bahamian organizations that we know uh, focused on persons with disabilities. Uh, we reached out to the National Commission for Persons with Disabilities, the Civil Society for the Bahama, um, and most recently, um, Every Child Counts, um, who helps um, mainly children with disabilities in Abaco. Um, but uh, at that time, we were able to establish a partnership with 242 Disability, uh, which is a recognized and acclaimed uh, disability-led organization in the Bahamas, um, which one that the National Commission um, you know, gave, gave, gave good word to later on, as we've been talking this week. You know, we, we reached out to also directly uh, as a contact given to us by the chairman of the commission, uh, NEMA director, Captain Russell, and a couple of his staffers. Um, uh, th that was last Friday. We un we have yet to, to receive a contact back. Uh, and we understand, uh, as, as they are saying, you know, it's, it's about the infrastructure, um, not, they couldn't have been ready. Um, they weren't ready before for this, and maybe not many places could say are ready for 180-mile winds for two days. Correct. Now, there is, um, there is a thing to say that, uh, there, at least to my understanding, um, our president has not called Prime Minister Minnis yet. Um, that would be a good start. And, <laughs> and I wish that would happen. And surely, uh, you know, we know the U.S. Coast Guard is assisting there, and and I'm gracious to know that I have fellow citizens that are helping. And always thank you to to our, um, you know, enlisted officers. Um, but truly, as Kelly said, uh, United States has FEMA, and for all that it could be said badly, it does have billions available, if not in its budget, in the people they know if they could start really collaborating um, with NEMA, it would surely make a big change. Now we know that initially uh, SEDEMA, the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency was gonna lead the efforts. And today we learned from the American Red Cross that PAHO, the Pan American, Pan American Health Organization, is leading the efforts on towards health maintenance and persons with disabilities. We've reached out to them today. Um, we learned last night uh, from a fellow um, colleague that, you know, this is someone that we trust, that we know, that is seeing what is coming in and what is coming out. And even though, yes, many, many supplies are coming in, none of it is disability related. Uh, but, but Katie, you have so much, a few more details on that you want to share? Is that from uh, talking about speaking to Brandon last night? Um, so NASA has become basically like a fortress. I don't know that anybody can really kind of get in and get out what they possibly need. Um, Herman, you're going to have to help me use, trigger, trigger because we've had so many conversations um, Brandon, go ahead. Tell me, re refresh my memory, please. Well, I mean, because now um, the government is, is it's attempting to to set up um, the infrastructure for for this disaster. As we talk, I mean, yesterday I heard that they're 
working on a, on building a you know a temporary shelter that could hold four thousand people at a time and and that kind of system persons with disabilities get very easily lost and, and not serviced but because there is this disaster um there are individuals that are um gouging fellow Bahamians. Oh, so um, I know that they were charging like $80 for water. I don't know if that was per bottle or six pack. There were like $500 and up charging for cab rides, um, as well as the $5,000 for flights. And you know me, I'm going to go to social media and call somebody out, which I did. I don't know if you saw my post. Uh, I'll read, read you word for word what I, I went okay. ahead and did um, because I like some answers. I, these people were, I think I shared the link, the hot link with you. You did. Still available. So, so last night I went to Facebook and tagged Zip Aviation. I need to speak with, and I'm going to butcher the owner's name. Did you see it, Herman? I, I, I it uh, would have to make sure I get the name right. I'm not going to try to say it, David, because I'm going to butcher it. I need to speak with you immediately before I bring all kind of issues to the media that are taking place in the Bahamas on behalf of some of the aircrafts from your company. Now, it didn't get as, as much attention as I would have liked, but it's out there. Uh, I did directly message the owner that I can't pronounce his name. I said, I need you to contact me ASAP. I'm not sure if you are aware of the $4,500 charges being charged for flights by your company out of the Bahamas. Before I go to the media about this, I suggest you contact me. I am heavily involved in disaster relief and assistance, and I was told you may not be aware of this. But before the media is aware of it, I would like to speak to you. So I didn't get anything back, and, and that's fine. Uh, I went through the proper channels and contacted him first. But to protect the um, the person sharing the information, because he was doing the right thing, he made the flight. It was only supposed to be a 30-minute flight. However, a friend of his was a few, you know, maybe mile or two miles away who had broken a, a broken leg and was starting to have some serious infection take place he went to meet him and helped assist him to the helicopter so his 30-minute flight i think went over about an hour an hour and a half when he returned back to base um he was told that he could no longer operate any flights because he was out of his 30-minute window and was just flying fl friends and family around now he was saving people and not um, flying the media, and that was what they wanted. They wanted the media to have the flights. And, and Katie, if I'm correct on this too, the so this $4,500 charge, um, that was, if people simply went on the site and were clicking to inquire about that, a lot of times their credit card was already being charged for that 45 as soon as they put in some information. And then um, it was booked completely unrealistic also, right? It was like every hour and realistically you weren't going to get these flights Correct. and beyond how insane that is that, that, you know, basically the wealthiest can buy their way to, to safety. Um, here we have someone who exercises um, humanitarian uh, discretion 
and is basically then punished, you know, for it. So that also happened to me, uh, that happened to me as well yesterday after I spoke to a pilot who actually is from the Lafayette area. He, uh, the company he works for, they have an S-92, which is a very large helicopter, um, able to get a great deal of supplies as well as people in. They have been contracted out by this billionaire from the Bahamas. Well, yeah. if I may, um, okay. just so every, if anybody hears this and it, it is in a timely fashion, um, SIP Aviation, we understand that we, we, we reached out to the owner, um, Itai Shoshani, and it, it's not, we're not saying, Itai, that you're doing this, but Correct. it's happening below you. You need Correct. to check out this. And to John Malone, um, we understand uh, Mr. John Malone, uh, billionaire owner of telecommunications, that he owns... Um, we don't know if it's the full key or part of um, Solomon Key, very near uh, Nassau, south of Abaco. Uh, we don't know if it is Mr. Malone who is, you know, for lack of a better word at this time, hoarding resources for um, his services. But if you hear this or if someone knows John Malone, I mean, we know that he is a, a grad and brick supporter of Yale. Um, it would be great if he reaches out to, to you, David, so that you can let us know. Or yeah. he can reach out to me directly at dart at disasterstrategies.com. I mean, dart at disasterstrategies.org. We would need assistance right now as much as possible. We are ready to supply DME, medical equipment, what the Bahamians with disabilities need to sustain their health, to be independent, and that the Bahamian government can adhere to its um, agreements to the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Right. The there's, there's plenty of, of water, uh, perishable foods, diapers. You know, there, there's plenty of your typical immediate supplies that people automatically think of. Uh, toiletries, all of those supplies are literally in, in hangars of helicopters and, um, you know, plane hangers in Florida. Those, they're, the, they're stacked there. I'll get you some okay. pictures. When did, when did they get there? So, let, so let's move this on. This is perfect. So the staging of assets. Um, when were assets ready in Fort Lauderdale or Miami, ready to go out? So if you would have had, um, yeah, means to transport them to Bahamas, when could that have happened? I think that that started probably in the middle of the week. Once, uh, because you, you have to know that the storm final, finally moved, what, Monday, Sunday? Out of there by, by, by Wednesday of this week. Of this right. Week. So, you know, there was that issue of actually being able to get support right. in. So since then, you know, most of the Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, any type of hangar for aircraft, has been loaded with supplies, and that that's fine. Those are essential supplies that anyone can use daily. However, they're not disability supplies. They're, yeah, they're not. Let's go over they're disability not. supplies, just because people are listening, and we're familiar with this, but when people are listening, they're not understanding, they're understanding tangibles, a wheelchair, things like that. But help me to understand, help the audience to understand um, disability supplies, what that 
area of a warehouse might look like? Uh, well, it, it's so it's it's gonna, it takes a larger wheel uh, I'm going to say wheelchair. It takes a larger aircraft as well to get in some of that due to the fact that you can't fit um, heavy, you know, wheelchairs and, and some of the other pallets on just your typical, you know, 407 type helicopter. It would be nice if I could get another C-130 like I had to send 12 generators to Puerto Rico. That would be amazing because they right. could land in Freeport. Um, but that's going to go back into the military. And I don't know that military re assets are, are able to assist right now. So I haven't been able to secure or find a aircraft in that regard. Basically, some of your smaller planes... Um, and smaller helicopters, which then in turn means everything has to be broken down from pallets. Okay. Whereas so, we could just take a pallet, two pallets of the supplies, put it on a, you know, a C-130 and get it there instead of having to break it all down. Um, got it. Got it. So that I takes may, time. Okay. If I may, um, you know, when, and, and again, that, that, as Kitty was saying, these are like the, the logistical, we, we are, we are ready. Um, and have the capacity to send in some of these things that people with disabilities need. Let's say you have a mobility disability, a wheelchair, a walker, a cane, even crutches. If you are someone who's blind or low vision, a walker, even if it has to be, you know, height adjustable. You know, we're talking about um, people who, who are, you know, sit for a longer period of time so, or laying, are laying in the bed. I mean, we're hearing about people in persons in the Bahamas who have, do not have a wheelchair, so they are in bed, you know, bedridden. We're talking about the humidity level. It's over you know, 100 for what we're experiencing in the United States. And the, the, the heat uh, of the tropics, you know, I, I know when I was in Puerto Rico, I uh, we helped a, a, an older couple and, and an older lady um, in her late 80s in six days developed eight new decubiti ulcers. So the equipment, you know, pads, the cleaning supplies for this type of equipment, you, you know, some uh, of us... Go ahead. Some of us, you know, can't use the bathroom as others. So there are some urinary things like catheters and... Urinary bags lubricant, yeah. large blue absorbent pads, colostomy bags, uh, silicone ex external catheters, urinary catheters, insure. I mean, these are not your typical things that people think about. Right. We do. And, right. you know, I guess it's become so near and dear to my heart based off of my initial work with Drake Mamas and over the years of working with the partnership and Portlight, because I, I have a much, I'm much more aware of these types of needs. I can get the, the typical immediate supplies, no problem. <clears throat> but for some reason, it is such an issue. Um, I should be able to pick up the phone. And I've talked over the last three days, David, with probably 10 to 12 pilots who their hands are almost tied and they can confirm with me that there are no, no, none of these supplies are coming in. Okay. 
So you said their hands are tied. Tell me more. What's tied is they can't come in and receive these? They're already contracted out to work okay, with. that's what I thought. You know. Another tied hand, if I may, like just one more, is that as we understand, uh, for supplies to be able to move through customs, they need to be NEMA approved okay. at this time. And we would need the collaboration of NEMA to be able to truly reach all the individuals we need. And see, that's the difference between Herman and I is I, I'm, I'm that person who's like, I'm ready to get on a helicopter right. and just go there. Right. I'll go without a passport and just say, you know what, lock me up. I dare you. Because there's some great organizations there currently, Samaritan's Purse, uh, Hope for Hope Town, Harvest, you know, Hope Food Bank, Habitat for Humanity, Arrow Bridge. These are some great organizations. However, none of them are associated with disabilities. Even so, Team Rubicon, I must say. Team Rubicon okay. is another great one. So what you're, what you're saying is, even if you could get the assets there for persons with disabilities, you really don't have people in the Bahamas that would know what the items necessarily are and how to prioritize and how? distribute them, right? You don't have that. No. Herman actually has been speaking daily with Howard, and I'll let you go ahead. and. Yeah, okay. So we have the... If you will, you know, understanding Bahamas is a different, it's another country, right, uh, with its sovereignty. Uh, civil society organizations are, is a strong, uh, much stronger than they are here in the United States. Um, that being said, uh, we have connected with many of the civil society organizations, and with, like what we call over here nonprofits, if you will, right? Yes. Um, so we do have the, the, the connection, the capability we have had identified needs and specifically coming out of Freeport. Um, now what we need is the permission or the collaboration with someone that has the permissions to be able right. to deliver the needs that have been identified. And we have two pallets ready to go. So if it was approved, um, do you feel you could get the, uh, the planes, the helicopters, the, the boats, the transport? that they'd be available, or are they all consumed now through basically being bid out to the highest bidder? You know, I, I guess, help me to understand that. Yeah, I had zero trouble in Hurricane Harvey getting air support. Zero. I spoke to one of our guys who actually assisted with a seizure med drop through, it was the request came through the hotline for uh, Port Light and the partnership for a little boy that he needed his seizure meds. There was a mom in another town, got the meds to the helicopter pilot at the hangar. That helicopter pilot I spoke to today, and um, he's like, Katie, my hands are tied. I'm going to send you some contacts of mine. Make sure, you know, mention my name. That, I, I, that's, at this point, I'm talking to pilots I've already worked with, right. and they're saying, let me funnel this contact to you. So you say hands are tied. So... There's there's two things. Is a hand are the hands tied because they're already committed to doing other projects, or the hands tied because of this isn't NEMA approved, so they don't have the approval to intake money has into the country. Okay, so um, so the NEMA um, 
you know, Herman, as you indicated, that's something that could be done in five minutes with a presidential phone call, right? That could be, or a presidential order of saying, um, and this is something I wrote about um, extensively. I studied it, social contract theory. But, 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 to be clear, you mean a, a phone call from our United States president to the prime minister of the Bahamas? To the, to the prime minister um, requesting a... Uh, a stay on the the customs um, procedures as we know them to do some massive streamline of humanitarian aid through customs. Um, that yeah, that that couldn't be done through an executive order in in literally minutes, right? Because it could be. Like I know it could be. Um, yes. Yes. And and so you know, and I I studied extensively um, September 11, 2001. Ironically, tomorrow September 11th. So. Um, the rescue in New York City. I worked with the City Department of Planning um, extensively through the documents. And, and one thing of the rescue in Lower Manhattan on September 11, 2001, the attacks in the World Trade Center. In nine hours, in, okay, it, it, in nine hours, 500,000 people were rescued by boat from Lower Manhattan um, and taken off the, you know, into New Jersey and so forth. But so the system developed, right? It developed because um, Admiral Loy of the Coast Guard said, anybody out there with a boat and you can come over and help us do it. And, and they did it. So we're talking now kind of a, a parallel. Now we're, it's different countries, but still, if people wanted to make this happen, it would happen. And people don't. So I mean, this is where I'm going to move us because today, um, Ron DeSantis, the, the Florida governor, said it, and I'm, I'm going to quote it. He said, he said this today, the feds, not Florida, have a role to play in the bohemian crisis. So that's what he said, basically saying, listen, um, we're going to wait for the, the feds to take the lead, and we're not, we're going to address our, our needs in Florida, but as far as, as the Bahamas, that's really country to country, and we're going to step back from that. So it's like, whoa, but here's something. This isn't the way that Florida has responded to international crises in the past. So um, uh, Florida as a state has responded to international disasters much differently prior to what's happening right now. For example, in 2017, when Hurricane Maria left Puerto Rico devastated, then Governor Rick Scott used state resources to assist the U.S. territory, making seven trips to the island and setting up welcome centers and airports in Orlando, Tampa, and Miami as almost 400,000 island re residents moved to the mainland. So it's not like this has never happened, right? It's not that Florida hasn't stepped up. It's not that the United States hasn't stepped up. But right now, and what's frustrating for me and growing throughout this interview is both of you, uh, all three of you, okay, but both organizations are phenomenal. You're wonderful. You're doing everything. And now we have this bureaucracy breakdown, which is absolutely ridiculous because by the day we have the likelihood of, of skin breakdown ulcers, but then um, gangrene and then cholera and what else is going to happen all because, and this is the part, and Katie, we talked about this a few nights ago. Um, this doesn't even... Uh, not that this would make sense anyway as a, as a, a political maneuver because human yeah. humanitarian um, need should never be um, above, a, you know, as a political ploy. But right. even looking at it from that perspective, this makes no sense. This is completely yeah. bipartisan, right? Um, there's no one that would argue to not give relief to people in need. Like logically, right. it doesn't make sense. 
So, so, so the governor, so when I saw the governor's comment today, my head went all kind of ways. Does that mean all of the private helico- uh, private airports or, or uh, public airports that have been shuffling supplies in and out or, or even people, is he going to put a halt on that now? That's where my head immediately went. Yeah. So in, in my interpretation of this would be if I am a rescuer or if, if, if I'm in the capacity of, of facilitating a rescue now, I, I, I'm feeling I just don't, I don't have that support behind me from a, um, you know, the, the bureaucratic support isn't there. So this, this is something, so what, what happens and give me your perspectives on this kind of individually, but what, what happens if it starts to slow down and, and you have the, resources ready, you know you can connect and have them um, distribute it on the other side. Would you ever make a decision to say, we're just going in? Yes. We're going in because I we're not going to let this go. I, I mean, will. Her, her mind, what, what do you, what, people you work with, what, do you, I mean, what if it happens right now that something unfolds in the next day or two and it becomes this big um, domestic political match um, which is insane and ridiculous, right? Because we're talking about lives, right? This doesn't make sense, but this could actually, it seems like this is playing out, like politics is unfolding um, in its nastiest way. Um, it, at what point do you do you make a decision to circumvent the conventional structures and almost do what happened on 9-11 and just say, we've got a boat, we know what we're doing, we're going to do it. And, and historically... Um, History is with you, okay? And systems will develop social contract theory and all of these things. Those things are in, in your favor. But at what point have you had these conversations with your organizations or behind the scenes of saying, you know, if governments <laughs> break down, them. what do we do? What do you do? Well, you know, I, I must answer this um, right. <laughs> and the right answer is this. Uh, there are people there, as there are everywhere, that have diabetes. There are people there that need uh, their dialysis. There are a number of needs that, you know, there, there are people with tracheotomies that, that, that need their oxygen. Um, there are a number of needs that have a life period. Um, and we're getting near there. Yes. When we must act, we will. Okay. Yeah, and and certainly, um, you know, I, I guess there's a lot of emotion that that comes up, you know, when we have this discussion. And I don't want to lead anyone down to a a statement, you know, where you're you're overreaching for your organization. I I, I want well, I want people to understand though is is that your organizations do have to have these conversations because the fact when when the government um, stalls for no good reason, right? But when the government stalls, the needs don't change of the people. And as time goes by and people are removed from their essential resources like dialysis and, you know, we don't have electricity and resources and things like that. Um, people will die and, 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 and infections and, and diseases will manifest and spread. So, um, these, these are the kinds of conversations within organizations which um, I, 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 they're so intense and people just need to realize that that you go from um, b- 
being a, a broker of resources to now um, really being the broker of, of last resort for life and, and having to make those decisions. And, and I just want people to grapple with that. When we have political um, positioning, posturing, that the organizations which are doing some of the greatest good, and you've mentioned a number of them, and plus you represent some of them, um, are put in these horrible situations where you you have this cl- this this ticking clock which doesn't change. And and what are what rules do you abide by? Um, well, and and David, you know, just after speaking to me, you know, in 2016 when Louisiana had the flood. There were fire departments, there were police departments begging for help, begging for citizens to come out with their boats. And we did that. We, we came out, we deployed, we assisted. And so from 2016 to now, we've been able to create these relationships with the Florida State Police, with South Carolina State Police, with the governor of Texas, with, with the officials locally and statewide that we need to so that when our need is there is requested we've got those in i just had some guys in south carolina for dorian that tried to get turned around but see i gave them my police state police contact so you know that's in my blood and it's kind of what triton has done we're going to get in and we're going to help however establishing the right contacts and making those connections excuse me, is something that we have tried to create and like to follow. This being a different country and knowing I feel like my hands are tied, except now I'm at a point where I want to call one of my pilots and say, can you come get me on your helicopter and fly me in so that I can go there and go Facebook Live for for personal reasons and show everybody what really is going on. A must-read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So what's really going on? What, what are you, both, both organizations, what's being, um, how are you being informed of what's, what's happening in the Bahamas? Tell me the stories. You don't have to tell me the names, but tell me the stories of what's happening um, right now. What, what's the latest intel that you're getting? How dire is this situation? Well, we, we have been in, in um, constant touch, daily touch um, communications with our uh, local colleague, um, Howard Bow. He lives in Freeport. Uh, he's given statements. He, he's shared things in, in, in his social media. That's why I say his name. Um, he He's a wheelchair user. He tells us um, there are no, as you know, the medical supplies that we need to keep our health 
are no longer. The, the, the small hospital that was in Freeport inundated all the supplies. Oh, oh, any and all medical supplies that you can imagine, gone. And then, so we said earlier, they are not part of the aid that is being delivered. Um, people will soon begin dying if, you know, things like catheters that are right now making people's bladder busts. Um, we're talking about some simple things, right. but right. that in a week, in a few days, since they haven't had these in a week, there's going to be an, another different type of catastrophe in their hands. Um, one thing that I also want to add as a as a problem that we're seeing on the grounds is that, you know, Everybody um, is being directed to send supplies to Nassau, and, and so everything is going there, and then it's not necessarily getting distributed to other islands, to people like Howard who, who are at home and need, um, you know, catheters and a new wheelchair and, and things right. like that to stay in his own home. And, and that's what we really focus on is people living in the community in order to maintain their independence in the community. One other um, situational observation that he shared is the the hubs. You know, they they you know I saw it myself in Puerto Rico with the Red Cross. He tells us he's seeing you know distribution hubs being set up. People with wheelchairs that have mobility issues, older folks cannot get to these um, distribution hubs. Okay. So please, Katie, I think you had something to add. No, it's just. I'm listening to this and, you know, it, all of these supplies and needs being sent to Nassau, look at all of the water that was left in Puerto Rico. After, I mean, how many pallets of, I can't even remember, but the fact of the matter is there were probably people who needed that water. However, it was not distributed. So, our focus has been to not get supplies into Nassau. It's been Freeport. Because you, you, I can promise you, if I were there in Nassau, the video footage I would get would probably be disgusting for people to see of the supplies just sitting. Wow. So I, I want to just um, put a little context to this. So we're talking about um, people with, with disabilities and the... So we have 400,000 people uh, total in, in the Bahamas. And if we take a conservative number of just general populations of, of people with disabilities, so anywhere between 50 and 70,000 people, and that doesn't include people necessarily who might be elderly um, and, and just in, in general um, might not be um, as able to access, you know, might fatigue easier and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, this, you know, let's put a number to this. This isn't, you know, 5,000 people, you know, 50 to, 50 to 70,000 people. I, I just want to put that out to give some context because I think people are thinking, well, is this like a group of people in, in one area? And then, it's um, not a club. so it is substantial. Um, so let's think about that, you know, those that had a disability, you know, we could be, con you know, conservative and say a 2% of that number, you know, 5,000 or so. Um, then you add uh, your older population. Let's let's add another five thousand to that. Um, you add those that acquired 
at least a temporary disability now yeah. for injuries after the storm. I, I can tell you that in Puerto Rico, I met, uh, uh, um, you know, a senior person, but, you know, young senior went out a couple of days after Maria had passed cleaning, uh, fell and dislocated two shoulders. And then because of having orthoporosis, the local hospital didn't have the capability to put to, to snap them back in place. She was now with dislocated shoulders for three months. Both of them. And her 90-year-old mother, went when seeing her daughter fell, went to assist there, all being wet and whatnot, fell and broke her wrist. So this type of story just really, you know, it, 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 it just continues and continues. Right. Then, if I may add, uh, I would dare say all 50,000 people now at least have gained a traumatic experience. I mean, that still as Dorian, you know, Category 1 approached um, my, my fellows in Puerto Rico and USCI, uh, both of their stories were very similar in in the fear of what could happen again the ptsd yeah that's and i thank can, you i could speak on that you know because david you know when a hurricane is approaching i've got all of my guys in boats who are calling me Pishon, we're ready to stand by and deploy and so i'm so grateful of having them reach out to me and telling me they're on standby however I suffer PTSD from the traumatic experiences of hearing my guys in boats tell me they can't get to someone, they need a helicopter. So the fear of everything I've already experienced immediately kicks in. And I, I myself kind of go into a frenzy of just being fearful. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for bringing that up. Um, Herman, I, um, two points in Katie. One is uh, acquired disability. Right, because um, any injuries that happen as a result of of the hurricane, any physical um, injuries that that happen as a result, or or now we're going to have um, you know potential illnesses striking people, um, yeah, in, yeah, injuries, um, dis- disease, things like that, uh, urinary tract inf- infections because not sufficient water, you know, just things like that. Um, but everybody is impacted by this absolutely devastating um, event of nature, the, the hurricane and um, the, the the psychological trauma that has, it, it's, you know, it, again, it, I wrote about it called the Taurus, T-O-R-U-S, Taurus. Um, the Taurus means every, every day we kind of expect self-similarity. Like today is going to be pretty similar to yesterday. Yesterday is pretty similar to the day before. But when you have something like a, a Hurricane Dorian uh, slam down on you for 48 hours, and you know that it's coming, right? In it, in, in all of this, um, that that totally wipes out your your sense of self-similarity and rockets you into the state of chaos, where you don't have a baseline, you don't know what's going on, and now you can't return to your pre-event baseline because when you open up the door, everything is destroyed, right? Everything is gone. And in addition to um, the whole psychological trauma 
that now someone is saying, oh, there's another tropical depression and you're, you're just fearful. So it's hard for you to frame um, just what's happening around you. So, so this devastation, which, which I've, so let me, let me put this out there. So um, how, how do the, the psychological needs of, of people get met or what, you know, what, what's, what's your perspective on, on that or, or what are attempts to, to do that? Are the right people in the right positions to help assist with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I have no idea, but you know, is it bringing, bringing counselors? For, are there? For example, I'll share, I'll share a story that was a pilot shared with me today. You know, it's wonderful that the military is out there helping in whatever way they're helping. I, I'm not sure, but I think that because of the devastation, they are being a little more careless than they probably should be. And today, one of my pilots watched the military, I guess, probably flying too low or not being as cautious as typical, blew uh, what was left of a house down, and a two-by-four hit someone in the head and, and killed them. Oh, my goodness. So, so are, we, are the right people in the right positions to help in the right way? And, and, and absolutely. And to add um, to those that continue to see new, new events that will cause trauma, um, PTSD has a long history, right? The symptoms of PTSD are the symptoms of shell shock. For those yes. of us that were old enough to remember that. This a trauma is a trauma. This, what, as humans, what, the, 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 what we need to be able to cope with trauma is trauma. Um, so there are counselors that specialize in this. The, the systems exist. I will, I will add that. Um, and later on, I'm sure um, we'll talk again, David. Uh, but in the United States, we are working on a federal piece of legislation called the Disaster Relief Medicaid Act. Medicaid is a system that you cannot take with you across states, and this legislation will change that, and anyone that qualifies for Medicaid will be able to keep what they had or, or just be able to qualify for it in their new state if they have to evacuate. And in there, we have specified that all people that experience a catastrophe need, you know, this type of counseling and family members. Because as Katie's saying, she hears the story, family members, there is a different trauma that, that goes on from those of us hearing and assisting um, those directly affected. Yeah, I can't, you know, the PTSD that I've got is nothing compared to the PTSD that the folks in the Bahamas who have, you know, weathered this storm are going to experience. So it's just, uh, you know, every year I get tongue tied because yet again, you know, somebody said to me, I said, we've never seen this kind of devastation before. And they said, Katie, you're wrong. We absolutely have. Every year, it's a different devastation that we've never seen. So it's not that you haven't seen this before. You have, just maybe not on this level. And I took that and really thought about it because we have experienced this. Has it been in another country? No. But I think over the years, the organizations that are continuously involved in making the relief efforts happen are not we're not, we're not able to to 
to assist, and it's so disturbing. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Katie, thanks for sharing that. And um, again, there are pieces pieces of information that I, I'm writing down. Just, just I, I want to make sure I touch on. Um, so, Herman, you mentioned that you're working um, with legislators on what would be the Disaster Relief Medicaid Act, and it, as you describe this, it makes perfect perfect sense because Katie, you, you talked about um, you know whether it be you know Louisiana, uh, Texas, Florida, but but people moving not only through throughout their state but into different states um, because of of um, hurricanes, right? And I had no idea, right? I, I I had no idea. I just had never thought about it that your Medicaid from Florida, if you need to relocate um, into, you know, northern Alabama, whatever it is for a period of time, that now you have an issue because your Medicaid is through Florida and it doesn't cross state borders. Um, it just, I remember I was, I was teaching um, a student uh, in a qualitative statistics class. I'm a professor and she was in um, Louisiana during Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And she needed to evacuate, and the university was willing to, um, you know, say, "You can, re- we can refund the class for you. That's not a problem, right?" Um, and she said, "No, I want to continue to take the class. I just don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow." And I, I was her instructor, and I said, and there was an article about this. Her name was Katie. Also, I forget what her <laughs> name. Was. Um, the newspaper did an article about this because it was so phenomenal, and she said it was so important for me to keep this class keep going in this class because um, that was my point. That was my Taurus, right? That's my self-similarity, my normalcy. Like I know the class will be there. If I can find some kind of Wi-Fi, someone's computer and log in through some system, or if I can call you and I'm like, if you're up for this, I'll accommodate you in any way that I can to make this happen. If you can find, you know, phone or, and this was back, you know, when internet wasn't as robust as it is today. And I'll never forget how much that meant to her at the end. And she was getting things done. And she said, I can't sleep in the shelter. Like, it's just, I, it's just so unusual for me, right? I'm just, I just can't in all the trauma of moving. And I don't know if my house is still there. I don't know if all of this, you know, neighbors, things like that. And, but she was able, she, she'd used this class. And she said, this, this is what I burn my energy on right now. And she was, she was phenomenal. Did like three times the work of anyone else because this was so important, but it was an early lesson for me of, of, you know, I'm, I'm talking to her and she's also like, I have no idea when I come back and she sent pictures, you know, like her, her, the school that she taught at was gone. It was just a concrete slab. It was completely gone when she eventually returned weeks later. So, um, so this disaster, I'm, I'm meeting with our, one of our state legislators on Friday. He sought mm-hmm. me out for, so we're having a meeting and, and I want to, run this Disaster Relief Medicaid Act just to see if he is apprised of this. Um, Okay, so, um, you know, so we know counseling, I I would would assume, you know, um, churches and, 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 you know, looking for, you know, the the psychological, you know, support systems for people. Um, So, okay, right now, um, we kind of catch up with where we're at. We talked about the assets, you know, that, that are needed. The assets are staged. They're ready to go. Um, we don't, we t- you know, Herman, you talked about who's, who's in charge. Um, and we also know right now we have 
Um, from the U.S., we don't really have a firm commitment um, from a national level. And definitely from a state level, we have a pullback from what's typically a position of, of offering aid. We have a pullback position from Florida. Well, um, you know, David, this is a question that I think all of us have kind of had. Um, <clears throat> considering the, the devastation that's taken place, why hasn't, if, if the president doesn't want to get involved in as deep as he should, why hasn't some sort of order been, been you know, put into place where, you know, passports and visas are lifted? Because right. Ron, I don't right. know right. if we're able to follow up with this, but from a Facebook post that I shared with our group the other night, there was a pilot who had some people that he brought into Florida. The pilot was, I think, put into jail, but then released with his plane. But a 15-year-old girl was put into jail. I don't know what came of that because I think we maybe handed it off to Becky. I'm not sure. So two two parts um, to the story that, that Katie is mentioning. We are following through um, the Office of um, Civil Rights and Civil Affairs. Sorry, Civil Rights and Civil Liberties in DHS to this specific case. Um, we, we, we will make sure that we get an answer. Um, then th this morning uh, I saw a, a White House press conference where uh, DHS personnel stated that we have received, we, the United States has received um, two, two cruises, two cruise ships and process thousands of people and that we would welcome people even without their paper um, if they are seeking help. Um, we did learn this afternoon on a call uh, from a colleague in the American Red Cross that about 40 about 40 or 50 people from the Bahamas were in one of their shelters. And today their county came in and said, well, we're taking uh, these people and putting them up in a, in, in a hotel for a week. Mm -hmm. um, we inquired what is going to be the process after the week? Like what, where are these people going? And right. At this point, she, she shared that she didn't know. Uh, we are happy that at least we're having some information coming down because what we hear on the news is evidently different from what we hear from, from our partners. Right. So Brandon, the contact I made who is from Abaco but lives in Texas, you know, he has to get back to work uh, September 14th. So what I'm going to help him with um, and Todd Holloway, Todd's helping as well. His parents, his parents want to get out of, of Nassau. Their house in Abaco is gone. Um, but is there going to be some, some red tape when they, they cross into the United States? They're saying no. Who, who's going to assure that? His parents are older. He has the capability to fly them out back into Texas, but what happens if he gets to that point where then his parents are, are you know locked up? I'll go I'll go to the Bahamas in a heartbeat without a passport, and they can gladly lock me up, and then y'all can do this, and it will go viral. <laughs> but but what about you know, people who are trying who are legal right. trying to get the family members out? Right. So 
so obviously the the passport um and that's that has been you know um uh stated in the in the media that um well the president has has stated um you know that we need to in, ensure it, i'm saying uh, and statements that the president has had of, of of identifying who's coming in and, and out of the country um, from the Bahamas. Now, I would say, or I will say, that's ridiculous, right? Because this is humanitarian aid, and this is a, this is a time of of far beyond playing politics. Um, and we, I think, Katie, we, we've talked about this before, but I think there's solutions to this. Um, as someone who has studied, who has written about um, on a scholarly level, you know, doctoral level about um, social contract theory, about government, about law. A um, few things. One is we could, we could suspend um, for a temporary time you know, span um, the depth of what we have for customs and, and what we have Why uh, not? For, for coming. That could, be, that could be done. The other thing is temporary autonomous zones, TAZs. So TAZs are pretty, familiar, pretty common all over the world at different times. A temporary autonomous zone... Um, happened on 9-11 in that harbor for nine hours. It, a system just kind of developed and it, and it, and it worked um, outside of a government regulation and government procedures putting it together. There was no handbook for how to rescue 500,000 people in nine hours. There never is. Right, there never, there never is. So part of it needs to be ultimately, and I believe this, FEMA needs to change fundamentally um, to, to, from what it is to being a resource brokering in, in um, asset, um, it needs to identify inventory of the assets, where the assets are, make sure there's a place for the assets, and then the transport of the assets. And then we have this whole structure that liberates civilian rescue forces, um, nonprofits, Triton Relief, Cajun Navy Relief, and so on, um, to do the work that they need to do without having to have all of these bureaucratic uh, bureaucracy um, checklists that they have to go through. And that simply needs to happen. Our, the hand will be forced, I think, at some point. The civilian rescue forces, this is very interesting. In 2011, there's many research points. I presented on public television about this. Many research points, at least in the United States, that said um, we got to a point when during a sentinel event, hurricane, uh, F5 tornado hits a town like Joplin, Missouri, you know, 50,000 people and destroys it. Um, people are going to Facebook. They're going to WhatsApp. They're going to Messenger. They're going to... Um, social media. Yeah. So, social media for, for the rescues to, to, to these um, private organizations and it, the private companies, but then they're interfacing with the nonprofits, such as Cajun Navy Relief, and you're interfacing then, Katie, with whoever you have to interface with to, um, you know, have have that boater make contact with that with that site. We're also seeing. Um, so I, I interviewed um, Giles Rice Jones um, of uh, the chief marketing officer for the company What Three Words. Are you familiar with What Three Words? By the way, they're out of London. So What Three Words um, is the United Nations uses What Three Words right now. It's a geo-addressing company. Every They took the entire surface of the earth and they, they put it out into three meter by three meter squares. And each one has a three-word address. So this one right here could be connection, 
coffee health, like right where I'm sitting. It's not, but let's say it is. And again, I did a presentation on public television about this, and I gave my exact location. But here's what's happening in Denmark, in Sweden, and Great Britain right now. Um, and also that United Nations is using this rescue model. It's in all of the Mercedes-Benz vehicles will be in the United States and Ford Motor Vehicles as their default GPS system next year. This is incredibly accurate, right? So right now in the Bahamas where landmarks are gone, and most of 75% of the world is an address anyway. It doesn't have an address. But you can identify exactly where the spot is, and it's much more precise. Even if it changes, like whatever building was there is gone, what's, what's there 10 years from now is gone. So when you dispatch rescue, or when you have someone on the other end who says, I have no idea where I am, and people, and they'll say, okay, download the app, whatever, and here the app is, and okay, we know exactly where you are. Yeah. So this is something I, that, is, that, is, that is sweeping right now, and it's interesting because the bureaucracy I see with school districts is, when I meet with school districts, and, and Friday when I meet with our state legislators, I'm going to say, you know what? The, the whole response that we have for school safety in Wisconsin, we have 421 school districts where I'm at, and they all have their own safety plans, how they would evacuate if something happened. And we've had tornadoes that hit the state. We had an F5 destroy one of our towns outside of Madison in 1984, destroyed it, just similar to what you, you, the scenes we're seeing out of the Bahamas. Um, Madison, our state capital. So, um, but you're going to use this geo-addressing. Geo you're going to say, um, in the moment, here's where you need to go to, and, and you're going to stage to that place versus saying, we're going to stage to the church or the warehouse two blocks away, which might not be there, and that might already be in your perimeter. So these are things which I, are coming on the scene, but they're also not government-controlled. And what I find a lot is people are in the government are very reluctant to hand over more of the social contract into um, civilian rescue forces, into social media, into the, like a what-three-words type app. It needs yeah. to happen, and um, I, it's this I whole mean, give yeah. and take. If I may add to know that I have been following that uh, over the last few years, um, you know, it will expand over the, the 36 um, satellites that, that track GPS. This, this will definitely um, help in, in evacuation and search and rescue. The, it, it's just coming out next year, uh, as David shared. Um, but but to, to, to your other point, David, um, as it relates to empowering the civic societies, you know, nonprofits in the community, uh, the companion, we do have a companion bill uh, to DRMA. It's called Ready, R-E-A-A-D-I. That's R-E-A-A-D-I for disasters. Um, these are two pieces of federal legislation. And I will send, we will send you after this. Thank you. Uh, all the information in relation. This specific bill does two, mainly two, two things. One, it will open new sources of money just to be able to empower nonprofits to be able to help in the planning, evacuation, assessment, and build back better. You know, things like centers for independent living that help and work directly with people with disabilities and other such nonprofits and not go through the FEMA and sometimes Red Cross bureaucracy. The yeah. other thing that piece of legislation does is will create a number of bodies um, as national projects, if you will, some some of them, another commission in, in within FEMA that will evaluate how badly the money has been spent in the number of in the last few years. I mean, and just today, by the way, these bodies will be mainly composed of persons with disabilities, um, and we know that today. 
you know, we're hearing how FEMA, the deputy director of Region 2, um, was just scheming money out of uh, Puerto Rico. Um, so this is the kind of things that we hope that once these pieces of legislation pass, the system will be better prepared for those that need it and right. we can evaluate and really start rebuilding our broken system. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. I, I mean, thank you. I mean, this you're educating me and 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 my audience and and the ripple effect this is going to to have because because knowledge is what's needed. And knowledge is is what's going to move us forward. Um, when so. when Hurricane um, Barry, actually thunderstorm Barry is what we jokingly call it, <laughs> um, was approaching Louisiana, we were on all on a call. <clears throat> And one of my biggest things was to find out the shelters that were accessible for people with disabilities. Well, I kind of caused a big ruckus um, because I had one of my dispatchers reach out through an email to the Homeland Governor's Homeland Security Office. And they provided us a list of accessible shelters for disabilities. So I brought that up on the call. Well, um, Amy Dawson, who she's just amazing. <clears throat> I'm being very sarcastic. Uh, she was infuriated because I basically shared it with Marcy Roth. And I said, are, are these real? Because when we have to deploy boats, they need to know where these people in anyone has to go. And it's best suitable for them. So when a disaster is approaching, I should be able to have a list of shelters that are accessible for people with disability. But no state, no state can provide that. Florida couldn't even do it for Dorian. Right, right, and, and uh, you know that's that's a frustrating part too because nine one one, for example, dial nine one one. Well, the reality is, in studying instant command systems and national. Um, instant management systems and working with uh, Fred Varian, who is is one of the best uh, in the country um, with instant command systems for 45 years. Saying it's kind of a system that is no longer functional, right? We've we've moved beyond that um, with social media and with apps, and and um, so to 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 stake people to these antiquated systems is ineffective. And then as as you said, um, you know, Katie, how embarrassing is it to not be able to at a state or county level to say, here are our, um, you know, sites for 
the uh, state has shelter, a right shelter, right? <laughs> shelter resources. Like, how do you not know that? Yeah, it's 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 mandated under yeah. the ADA. I've, I've got the different legislation points because I I bring those um, forward in my in my classes, and um, it, it is in in part of it. So what what happens, right? Is we have turnover. So um, these positions. That's that's one thing. Um, I learned in, in my role as a school administrator when I'm working with county emergency management systems, um, in a year that position might change leadership twice, right? Or if not more. Um, so you, you suddenly lose your connection. So even if you have this, this, this meeting and you get to know people um, three, four, five months from now, the, the stakeholders have changed. Um, they've, they've turned over. So what you need is redundancy. You need to train many people. You need to know many people in different organizations. So instead of me just knowing, you know, one person in, in Triton Relief, you know, I want to know three, four people in case, you know, you're not there or, you know, two people aren't there. I just have. That will never happen. Right. So, and, and the other part is an induction process. Um, government is horrible at induction. I know it because I was part of this for so many years and, and I teach this. I have this specifically laid out for my superintendents all day Saturday, you know, I'll be in a course. And one of the first things is how do we onboard knowledge? People that come into our system, how do we let them know the way that we do things around here? Because for, for it's one thing, right? If we're figuring out how we run the lunch lunchroom and the, the time that classes are coming down and stuff like that, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's functional stuff. But if we're trying to figure out um, how we're managing our food allergies or how we're managing uh, di our students with type 1 diabetes, like that's life-threatening, right? We, we have to onboard people very fast in, in that. Um, it, you know, you can't wait until the middle of October to get your staff trained about, oh, yeah, this, this student has a high RAST score or likelihood of, of a severe reaction, and here's your training on, you know, an EpiPen. You know, so so it's this whole thing in government where because of the turnover and people are termed and they get voted out and things like that in different positions, different people get then appointed to lead committees. There's a really bad handoff of a baton. And it's a point where people don't even know the baton exists. Like people are like, I'm, I, you know, I, I talked to someone once and I said, well, you're chair of what committee? And he's like, what? Where did you find that? I'm like, it's on the website. And he's like, no, I should have been off that in 2018. I'm like, well, it still lists you. So you got a hold of the person who was in charge of that. And yeah, they hadn't appointed someone yet to replace him. So he wasn't. So in the meantime, nothing was done. So, so um, as we get to wrap up, I mean, you've been very generous with your time. Herman, tell me, so you, you talked about, you talked about the, um, uh, the R E A A M E, the, the, the bill for disasters. What does the bill have for, um, induction or so you know the as the people turn over or in in this that that still has fidelity and reliability in it interrated reliability that um, it may be this great system but again how do people stay trained and is that built in did you I, i'm guessing you probably did think of it as you put this together of, of how you make sure that people are on board it so they can go right to the task Thank you, uh, David. Uh, the, the the name is Ready, um, and I'll let Shailen spell it out because she's the best at it. <laughs> it's Ready, R-E-A-A-D-I. So that stands for Real Emergency Access for Aging and Disability Inclusion. Or I'm sorry, uh, yes, Disability Inclusion for Disasters Act. And 
You can see why it's a difficult name to blur out there. Yeah, no, the difficult was my handwriting. You you gave it to me correct the first time, so I'm sorry. Um, oh, but, you but thank you for that, and thanks for sending it. So so, but yeah, tell me tell me about um, because this has to be significant, right? This is this is life and death. This is complex stuff. Um, how uh, how are you putting your information structure so people can access and plug into it in it's not foreign to them when a crisis hits. So for us, um, first, uh, from our perspective, is it that all the information is accessible in all fashions? You know that we're talking about people who have who are low or or blind can access it in different manners. That that it, that it is accessible. That the people that use you know all digital and needed screen reader that it that it is compatible. Um, and that is a big issue. You know that if it is. If information is being shared, uh, you know, verbally, that there is, you know, sign language, and so, so that that baseline. But but now to your specific question, the bill does have information about directing early on. You know, the, the point about why we are struggling right now, why we struggle in every disaster, is because we start dealing with it as the disaster comes. So right. this. This piece of legislation, you know, and directs um, HHS to begin preparations now in blue skies to begin establishing a um, home care core for, you know, home care. I myself, I am someone that with, if I don't have an attendant to help me out of the bed and help me get dressed, I will be in trouble, to say the least. So. That that you know that is one piece, uh, but more importantly, and how do we empower individuals? One, it's about funding, right? That you, we need to be able to have a place to meet, right? To be able to have, you know, when we are talking about, you're in Wisconsin. I mean, I'm not sure what part of Wisconsin you're in, but if, if you go out of the city. Sometimes transportation is very difficult if you if you don't have your own vehicle, right? So providing that and now coming together, bringing you know all the involved parties, emergency management agencies, and first responders, talking about American Red Cross and Centers for Independent Living, with their consumers to you know, talk about a cross-sectoral conversation on what works best for us during blue skies, right? Doing these processes so when the disaster comes, we're all ready. And as Katie was establishing very well earlier, what 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 works, if if we can pass on one lesson learned, is prepare ahead. Talk about it, get the relationship established established in blue skies. Now when the disasters come, we can all connect and deal with this effectively. Right. right. Well, and Herman, that is that is also the way um, when I've uh, communicated, I, I think, with the best uh, professionals um, for disaster readiness. They say that they say that in schools, for example. You know, let's let's run our our tabletop exercises, or let's let's talk about. Not necessarily, we have to do a full simulation, right? But let's talk about if this happened, how what we would do, who, who would be the, the people we put in charge of different things. Um, and so, so what you're also, talking, it, 
Yeah. I want to add, you know, it's it's critical to in to involve those communities that would be affected. Right. People, you know, leaders, people living right. in these communities, different you know, different sectors of this community, LGBT, as much as people with disabilities and different disabilities, you know, I cannot speak much for the needs of someone who is autistic, but I'll remember right. that right. they, I'll remember, um, and I'll call one of my autistic friends to say, what would you need to, as a baseline? And, and, and as Katie was saying, you know, every disaster is its own disaster. If you've seen one disaster, you've seen one disaster. <laughs> uh, right. And learning from those local individuals, you know, the, the local organizations, the local people involved, it's it's really one of the more important things to to be doing this right. So, I, I agree with everything that you're you're saying. I wanna I wanna introduce a, a story. When I was um, working w- with the Wisconsin School for the Blind, we were exploring um, apps to inform students um, if the school will be in a lockout. That's when the doors are locked. And we had a lot of students who went to a two-year campus, which was a few blocks from the, the camp. So the campus I worked on was a million square feet. It was all connected through hallways and the dorms. So students lived there during the week. It was their home. Um, but students were out in the community for, for employment, um, for doing orientation mobility, learning different routes, the bus system, and so forth in, in the community. Um, but so we so we had an app. Um, we we're, were trying different apps, and uh, the so I, I met with students, and, and you know the vendor was going through this app, and I'll I'll never forget the students were saying, well, uh, some students had low vision, other students were blind, and the students who were blind said, I can't access this, like the voiceover doesn't work, and the vendor said, oh that's okay, you can magnify the screen, and I said, whoa whoa, whoa. like no they're blind like this you designed this without voiceover so um i talked to him afterwards and i said okay like when you develop this you needed to have people um who are representative of your users so whether it be people who are blind people hearing impaired people with autism um, learning disability whatever um that you would have uh, trial this right and and then you'd learn okay right away oh we don't have accessibility and it should be built universally accessible but anyway um so that was absolutely insane we've spent three billion dollars a year on school safety we develop all kinds of things and they usually go through tr- they 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 get conceived and they get manufactured they're never with the users whether that be um, students with disabilities or students without disabilities or um any of the users they and and so we don't test things and there isn't any law that makes us do that and and here we see something else you know happening we have systems that are put in place without ever thinking about the people who actually use those systems right how crazy is that so what you what you're talking about herman with with ready is right there i mean having um universal design for access designed into the system so you're not retrofitting because if you're retrofitting that that usually is is not intuitive to try to retrofit a, a system, you know. Um, so it's designing it from the start. So I'm excited, and anything I can do to contribute to this, um, please let me let me know. And you talked about now in blue skies. That's a term I will forever use after this conversation today because that is a term perfectly to talk about now in blue blue skies right when when things are settled when we're in our taurus and we're not having to deal with chaos let's figure out 
um, okay, if this happened, um, how would we do this? And the thing is, this is science proven. We know that if people are told in advance and work through things, um, they typically handle them very well, even though they have to be dynamic and adjust to whatever the context and situation is that unfolds. They handle it really, really well if you tell them ahead of time, hey, like communications is probably going to go down. It's going to be, and this is how it's going to look and unfold. Um, but it's that step that we don't do, right? We, we, we have the, the binder. We have, um, as a colleague of mine calls it, app, app in a can, basically. It's like, go to the app and the app will tell you what to do. Well, come on, like that's ridiculous, right? So you are doing so much um, on a level that is going to start to adjust the structures, which will just be more inclusive and more intelligent um, because we're operating off a of really old, non-inclusive models, just mm -hmm. flat out, flat out. Um, as I, as we, a power couple. What, what was that? They, they, I said Herman and Shaylin are, are really a, a power couple. And, you know, it, it's people get involved in relief work. And, and sometimes when the dust settles, they're, they're gone because they think everything's over. And it's nice to be able to work with people who their hearts are in the right places and they are going to get it done no matter what. And yeah. they definitely, that's them for sure. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Katie. So are you, I must say. Katie, I'll never forget, you were sharing pictures of, of some of the work that you did, and you had one set of pictures where you were in a house, and you are removing drywall and helping that person, you know, putting in new drywall so you yeah. got the mask on and all of that stuff. And again, like, people are like, oh, like, I thought the disaster relief was kind of, you know, get people out of their house, get people into a yeah. setting, get the assets there, and then people are gone. And it's like... Yeah in some cases, but not at all in the work that you're doing. Um, and, you know, Herman and Shailene, the work that you're doing is is seeing people through to get them back to um, back to a stable uh, Taurus or, or a stable self-similarity where then they can they can function and move forward with their lives, which is so admirable. I mean, I, I, I mean, you're just doing such wonderful work. Um, I'm to wonderful people. I've tried to involve myself a little more in every aspect of disaster relief as the years go on because while boat rescues are one area and running supplies are another, you know, gutting homes, people think once the water has subsided, oh, everything's fine and dandy. No, because FEMA's not coming in to help these people. So, you know, getting involved with gutting homes and then, you know, my involvement with trade mama over the years has now led me to have the involvement of the disability network that so many are so uninformed about. So I try to make sure I have a little bit of involvement as much as I can because it's so much more than just a hurricane coming through and people do not understand it. They just don't. And, you know, David, thank you for, for speaking with us and, and sharing our message because truly it is something that is not covered often. And then when it is, we are often tokenized and, and viewed as inspiration porn, as we call it in the disability community. Right. And, right. and, you know, we are the leaders, <clears throat> excuse me, we are the leaders here in, in these efforts. And, and the partnership in Portlight are the only disability-led organization in the United States focused solely on disability and disaster relief efforts um, before, during, and after disasters. And 
Um, it's just incredible to see that there really is not a lot of people doing this similar work and um, and and the message is not getting far and wide enough that uh, we're not always getting at the right tables that we need to get at because because our message is not getting to where it needs to go. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, and we're happy that we've been able to take your time tonight as well um, and, and hopefully can do more in the future. We certainly always have more to share and and are excited that you are excited about the um, the Ready Act and the Disaster Relief Medicaid Act. And to all the listeners that, that, that tune yeah. in, absolutely. Thank you all. And I hope we made Marcy, I hope we made Marcy and Paul proud. I think so. Marcy Roth is the, the CEO of the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, um, who, who is our operational and advocacy leader. Um, and Portlight Inclusive Disaster Strategies, um, the president, um, Paul Timmons, um, it's, it's a leader in disaster. Um, he, we, they helped him during Haiti, specifically with persons with disabilities, and, and also uh, right after the Iraq war. They, they are two of the most incredible people I've met through this. And Marcy is a little firecracker who used to work for FEMA. She spent about eight to 10 years with FEMA. Okay. So it's really nice when we're all on a conference call and she calls them out to see if they're on the line or if they're lurkers. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, yes, Marcy, Marcy started uh, the FEMA's Office of Disability Integration and Coordination um, back in Obama's administration and okay. uh, left after Obama. And so she really built that infrastructure and, and that network, I mean, from the ground up and really created a robust uh, department specifically for people with disabilities in disasters. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we have to say in the past few years that uh, since we've seen that role being taken over by somebody else, that that department has significantly um, diminished and, and has really changed in its structure and, and how they operate. And we do see that effect trickling down to the disability community not being served um, fully and accessibly uh, throughout disasters. Just a simple uh, to, you know, point to that. I mean, uh now, as, as of a few months ago, but but in effect, as of a couple of years ago, if if you're a person with a disability, um, there is this title that exists in FEMA. It's um, uh, a disability and integration coordinator. Uh, at this point, that you know, before under Marcy Rothwell leadership, they would help individual. I mean, they, they would help the cadre to understand what disability is, but also individuals in the ground uh, with disabilities are on the application process and, and all right. that red tape. Right. As of now, and, and you could collaborate this um, online, um, Linda Masrella, the current um, director, uh, says that no longer the coordinators uh, will work directly with individuals. They'll, they'll give an orientation as the cadre of 3,000 people are going to head out of disability needs. Right. That's, that's so insufficient and, uh, and so uninformed to adopt that uh, approach. Um, just see such a dismantlement of that uh, department that it's really disheartening and really discouraging for our community that we, we've been really trying at all angles to, to work together and and really actually work with FEMA and and collaborate with our efforts and um 
we're just struggling to get through that at the moment. And, you know, I just like to throw out that there um, two to four times people with disabilities are two to four times more likely to be injured or die during or after a disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, one in four people are a person with a disability. Uh, you either have a disability, you know somebody with a disability, you grow old enough to to have a disability um, or, or, you know, you never know what happens when you walk out the door tomorrow um, and could become a person with a disability yourself. So, right. you know, we are so interwoven in our communities and um, just really need to be sure that we're represented and that there's nothing about us without us throughout the whole process. Um, how, how can people support the work that you're doing? I mean, they, they at this point, um, please visit uh, our website at poorlight.org and you can also visit uh, and donate and be informed there. Not only, you know, donations are always needed. Being informed, knowing what's going on, also empowers people on, on to react. Uh, I would also encourage people to visit uh, our um, great partner, which I'm also a board member of, Trek Mamas. Um, and Katie may may share their website in a moment. Um, and also, as she's a board member too, but also... Uh, uh, if you are a person with a disability and you want to get involved, look for the Center for Independent Living in your area. I also want to uh, give a shout out to the National Council for Independent Living, which are great collaborators of, uh, on the work we do. Uh, and lastly, uh, again, Trake Mama puts it together. Triton takes it, uh, and Sheila and I out there as first responders deliberate. Uh, why don't you close? Yeah, sure. uh, I also just want to add for the legislative bills that we were speaking about, you can learn more about them and how to take action uh, with them at ready, R-E-A-A-D-I dot com. Uh, uh, and, you know, who delivers us is Katie. Katie, why don't, why don't you close us up and deliver that? <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you, David, for having me, as always, more so for having Herman and Shaylin because they've been a huge backbone of this the Bahamas relief. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm probably the one person that's always going to cause a fuss and make things known and stir the pot a little because I think sometimes it's the only way to get the point across and the word out to the people who need to understand what's really going on. So like Herman said, I am now one of the board members of Trake Mama's extremely proud to, to be there. You can go to trachmamas.org, um, T-R-A-C-H, mamas.org. Jessica, she's amazing. And I'm now the vice president of tritonrelief.org. So we're still, we're not going anywhere. I'm still going to be causing a fuss. And I'm still going to, you know, continue this. And every year it's going to be a new learning experience. Response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD.
And remember, the truth will keep you safe.